Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 339th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Eric Roberge. Eric is the founder and CEO of Beyond Your Hammock, an independent RIA based in Boston, Massachusetts that oversees $47 million in assets under management for more than 80 client households. What's unique about Eric, though, is how 10 years after launching his firm and enjoying strong and steady growth, he hit a capacity wall as a solo advisor and, and suddenly found the business going backwards as a $4 million client decided to relocate and then market volatility caused several other clients to leave the firm, all while he and his wife had their first child, leading Eric to go through a full year of rebuilding multiple components of the business from staffing to technology to their client service calendar to try to get back on track again. In this episode, we talk in depth about how in 2022, Eric and his wife Kaylee faced a tumultuous year as firm revenue dipped from 600000 to 500000 of revenue run rate in just the first few months. And because it coincided with the arrival of their first child, they didn't have the bandwidth and capacity to adapt. How to help with capacity constraints, Eric decided to ramp up part-time outsourcing assistance from nifty advisors for their part-time virtual assistant to East Bay Financial for a part-time virtual chief investment officer. And how to create even more lifting capacity constraints, Eric changed the firm's meeting cadence from meeting with clients three times a year to only twice a year and utilizing surge meeting structure to both give him time back to focus on the firm as a whole and also just more capacity to be able to respond quickly to client needs throughout the year as they arose. We also talk about how Eric's decision to get a formal evaluation from FP Transitions not only helped crystallize the significance of what he had built when he saw the valuation from a third party, but also created a new perspective on where to focus his time to best increase enterprise value going forward. How Eric is focusing on increasing connections with prospects by creating content on his website and then hiring a PR firm to help him get podcast experiences to drive traffic back to the website and grow the firm's marketing funnel. And why Eric decided to offer a fee calculator on his website that actually allows clients to enter their assets and see exactly what their fee will add up to in actual dollar terms, because he found that prospective clients knowing exactly how much they would be paying in fees is helping to build trust early on. And be certain to listen to the end, where Eric shares why, even though he experienced a lot of challenges in 2022, he's grateful for the opportunities that brought him as he feels it helped better his communication with his wife. How Eric came to realize that in building a business, the solution to challenges early on was to work harder and better and more efficiently, but that eventually there comes a point where you just have to retool the business's systems and processes or you run out of energy to just keep working harder and better. And how living through the challenge of 2022 has helped Eric become more intentional in how he builds the firm with a newfound appreciation of the benefits that come from focusing, really focusing on changing those few things you really can control and letting go of the rest. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Eric Roberge. Welcome, Eric Roberge, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I think I'm more excited this time around than I was the first time. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I really should say welcome back to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You had you had joined us all, all the way back in in year two, which is now five years ago, as as time flies. Uh, when at the time you were five years into the business, uh, having launched 
almost 10 years ago and had had this wonderful um, you know, growth spurt out of the gate. You'd gone from zero to 300,000 of revenue very, very quickly in the uh, in the first five years and in, in kind of getting into a, a focused market that you were serving and kind of living this journey of like, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm marketing what I do to be my authentic self and find work-life balance as a professional and appealing to other people that were going through similar journeys and wanted to seek you out as an advisor. And so I now like, know like this, this growth journey has continued. The, uh, the business has like doubled again from where it was five years ago, which of course comes to some other complexities because as you grow enough, like you, you can't literally just do it all you at, at a certain points when there's just a amount of clients and revenue that it takes more. So you've, you've had to start hiring and expanding the team and a lot of dynamics that change with that. And so I, I think I'm just, I, in part, I'm, I'm excited to just get the update of like all the things that have changed and evolved for the business over the past five years, but particularly because I know now you have you have started down the road of as many of us do with businesses, they grow to a certain size, like going out and getting a professional valuation and figuring out like, okay, I used to make this thing because I was just trying to make some income. Now, like I've kind of got an income from my business, but also the business itself as an asset. And no, there's a lot that starts to change. Like the the first time someone puts a valuation on your business and then tells you what's good and bad about it. I like to put that in air quotes, good and bad about it from a business valuation perspective. It's like a, a whole new way to keep keep score about how you're doing in the business. And it it uh sometimes it brings a really different perspective when you start saying, well, what am I doing that's managing this growing business as an asset rather than I'm managing this growing business as an income stream. So just excited to dig into all of that because I know you you are living that journey right now. Yes, and, and you're right about just the the ever increasing level of complexity, and I think that goes for not only my business life and my personal life. Right when I was on this the first time, I had just gotten married, so there's a little bit more complexity there too in 2018, and then having a child, buying a house, and just expanding personal life, so that not only is it me trying to build a life and an income stream for myself, but now you have the family to support. And then you have this business that is expanding and you have employees to support as well and then more clients to support. So it just becomes this ever-expanding community, which is a completely different place to be than just being dropped in the middle of the woods and trying to get from here to there. There really is a striking, you know, just what it's like for those of us who, who launch businesses when we're still earlier in our careers, we're still single, there's not necessarily... Um, just like employee and family and child and mortgage dynamics and all the rest. And I, I, I like your analogy. There is just sort of this like you're dropped in the middle of the woods survival style go to. Uh, and, and then business grows and client count grows and staff count grows. And then we get married and we have uh, kids and we buy houses and, and all of it just gets a lot more complex on the, on the one hand, I'm like for all the folks out there that, uh, that raise still raise these questions like, but if you're going to work with people in their 30s and 40s, like, what do you do for them? Their their lives aren't that complex. They're they 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 don't have a lot of assets yet. And I'm just like, did you not build your advisory business in your 30s and 40s? Like, do you, I don't know anybody that actually describes that stage as like life was really simple and boring. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, there's all this complexity that comes with us. I know just that's the clientele you serve as well. So yeah, you know, we. 
we live as advisors as well as who we can serve with with peers. But I just I, I always chuckle even as you're describing this of like, yeah, thus so many of us live when we're building, you know, careers and professional services jobs, even beyond financial advisor world, but including financial advisor world. And like yeah, life gets complex. <laughs> like, just this stuff gets complex. You know, it, it also grows bigger and can be more financially rewarding. Like, there's pluses that come that come with that as well. But uh, it it sure doesn't get simpler as as the layers just keep getting added on. Yes, and not only are there more things, but they all are attached. Right? You pull this string over here, that thing over there moves, and and vice versa. So you you're building more uh, complexity. And that everything is part of the same whole, and you have to divide your time, energy appropriately, and make sure that if you're making a decision in the business, you understand maybe how it's going to affect your personal life. And if you're making a decision for your family, you have to understand how it's going to affect your business life. And I think that's part of where the biggest challenges have come in for us over the past couple of years as we've expanded both. Well, so can you share more in that direction? Like, how did that? How did that show up in practice? Like, how did you swing that, like, swing that pendulum between I got to do this in the business, so it's going to have a certain impact in in home family life, or I've got to deal with this in home family life, it's going to have a certain impact in the business. Like, where where did that show up for you in practice? It showed up everywhere, um, and it was it's pretty it was pretty challenging. Uh, and so I was talking to Kaylee, uh, and for those of you who don't know, Kaylee is my wife. Um, she's been in the industry as well. She's she's at um, at my firm, and she is the was and is still the full time marketer, the operations manager, um, chief investment officer, whatever you want to call her. She's everything in the business. And I was talking to her about this, and both of us have this mindset of, well, we're just going to move down the line and work harder and harder and harder to achieve the next level of whatever it is we're trying to achieve. And that worked for us really well through most of our lives until our daughter came along. And <laughs> oh, kids! <laughs> the minute she showed up, we realized that we can't just do that. It doesn't work when you have a child to just do whatever it takes to survive and expand. Right? We couldn't just work ten hours a day, and now we work eleven hours a day. You know, we we weren't able to do that anymore. So we had to become more mindful, and we actually had to take a step back and turn down the volume on the business to make sure the family stayed intact. Um, and that was, she, she was born in 2021. And so she's 19 months now. Um, and we're really coming out the other side in 2023. And we feel really great about it, but it was, it was pretty dark for a bit. So what does that mean when you say like, we had to be more mindful, take a step back, I think the label used turn down the volume on the business. Uh, like, just what did that mean in practice? Is that like we had to shed some clients? We like you know raised our minimums. We just like took a hiatus where we weren't taking clients for a while. Like, just what what do you do when you're suddenly feeling this squeeze of okay, my home life just got a whole lot more complex and like crap. This just isn't going to work the way it's been working before. Well, if you asked me that. When it showed up, the answer would be, I have no idea what to do. And that's how I felt for most of the time. So the Kaylee was working full-time up until she had Talia. Talia was born 
And obviously, Kaylee can continue to work. And we knew that, but we didn't really plan for the size of the impact that that, ha- that happened. And so October, November, December, those three months um, were really difficult because we had no support family-wise. We had no childcare. Um, Kaylee and I were the full-time in the business with our associate advisor. So there really wasn't a ton of people to support the business. And she came back to work probably sooner than she should have. And she was working 15 hours a week while trying to be full-time mother, while I was trying to be Mm. part-time dad and full-time business owner. And that's where I realized that Oh, oh, I need to I need to make sure that I'm I'm giving my full self to Kaylee and Talia, but also my full self to the business. And I only have one full self. So what am I supposed to do? So how did it show up in practice when it was starting to get squeezed? Like just were you suddenly like working long hours and then still having like long hours with family and and just like time started blowing out or was it showing up other ways like what what was happening in the moment that was making it not not good not working well from my perspective i was i was trying to continue to provide my my full effort in the business and and for clients because that's really important to me but obviously my business is is not as important as my family is if i'm going to put two them uh, right next to each other I'm going to pick my family every day over the business, but the business supports my family. So I was thinking, and Kaylee was saying, maybe we should back off. Maybe we should um, let some clients go and just tone down the business to more of a lifestyle practice and not grow it. And, And I was thinking in my head, well, if I don't grow it, it's dying and I need to continue to expand it to provide for the family who is now three. Um, so I just felt like it was such a delicate place that I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go, uh, where to put my energy. And it just became this ripping of sorts. And I was, feel like I was ripped, getting ripped in half because I'm trying to support Kaylee, who, by the way, and I talked to her about this, she said, I'm fine to share, was going through postpartum depression. Like she had depression after mm-hmm. the child. And so she's trying to work and be a mom and she doesn't know what she's doing on the mom side because it's the first time she's doing that. It was it was crazy. Um, looking back on it, I don't know how we functioned, um, but it <laughs> was human beings are wonderfully adaptive. We sort of figure out how to survive in some of those moments, at least for a little while. You burn out if you do it too long, but like we do somehow figure out how to get get through some of those dark times. Yeah, and I mean, and then the positive spin on this, and again, I was talking to Kaylee about this, and she was like, "It's made us." better people. It's made us a stronger family because we were both willing to put in the effort and keep lines of communication open, even if those communications were falling short at times because of emotions and other things. We really worked hard to get to where we are now. And and now she's back. You know, She works about 20 hours in the business. We have finally childcare for Talia. So she's, she's not in the house all the time now. So at least we have a little bit of space. Um, to do things other than take care of of Talia, but we're also mindful that she needs us as parents, um, and we're very much attentive to her when she is here. So it's just a better balance now overall. And this is a lot of the stuff maybe we'll get into too. In 2022 was a very much a transitional year because that was happening, and we're also trying to figure out what strategy we need to implement in the business. And there's a lot of things we put in place to now make 2023 a much better situation. 
Well, so what what else was going on in in 2022 uh, that that was changing the business? I guess beyond this or alongside this. <laughs> well, I would say probably June 2022 was where I would say rock bottom was in my three my last three years because my biggest client of four million dollars in assets was leaving because he was in Germany and he was going to stay there. Um, the market was crashing, right? So June and October of 2022 were the bottoming outs of things. Um, so it was crashing. Um, Kaylee was barely able to function and working 15 hours a week. Um, we had no child support. The the revenue, the the I always look at the forward looking revenue, um, the, the you know the forward 12 month looking revenue, and that was down about a hundred grand from where it was in January of that year. And, and I had no more capacity, right? I had no more capacity to do anything more. So I was just stuck. And and where was, can I ask, like, where was revenue or revenue run rate at that point, just so we have context here? Sure. Um, going into 2022, the recurring revenue was about 600000 like the projected 12-month revenue, if I didn't do anything else and just kept what was okay. happening in place. And by... Uh, G- June of 2022, it was down around 500 projected. And of course, the joy of advisory business and kind of operational overhead as you start as you start hiring up. You know, when markets are down or clients leave and top line revenue goes down, you know, any staff and team expenses you have, like that's still fixed. They you know don't really care that much that you markets are down or you lost revenue. Like I get a salary paycheck around here. That's a deal. Like. I'm still expecting to get mine. So, you know, like revenue that falls off the top basically comes straight out of our pocket as founder business owners. So like that, I'm just imagining like that means you're you're feeling a hundred percent of that pain and watching expected take home pay basically drop by a hundred K out of the out of the gate in the first six months. That is very accurate. Yeah. We did add a lot of business expenses in 2022 as well. So it just a combination of things was was hard to handle, but I wouldn't change anything now that I'm looking back on it. So you also said you weren't feeling like you had capacity to do more, which makes it particularly sucky. Like my my revenue is down and I can't really grow it back because that involves getting new clients that I don't feel like I have capacity to get. So what did the business look like from that perspective by by mid twenty two? Like how how many clients was it? And then what was the what was the team around you at that point? Um, client-wise, I think we were probably 78 to, to 80 um, because we, we had, not only was the biggest client gone, we probably lost another nine um, that year. And, and I think it was coincidental more than anything else, but you got to wonder um, if that was the case. Um, and th- we meaning, had... Meaning, uh, meaning what? Like you wonder if other clients were leaving because maybe you were at capacity and tapped out. And so maybe you couldn't give them the level of attention you wanted so they were not happy and leaving like that dynamic yeah i can't shake that thought i mean my in my head i put in full effort i never gave any less than i had mm-hmm. before but if if my mind is taken up elsewhere it just may not have been as effective the communication may not have been as effective as it was in the past and that that could have been partially why people went i i do have very specific examples of why people left um, otherwise, it had nothing to do with us as the business. Just was their life was changing, right. so not everybody right. was leaving because of that. But but you can't help but look and say like, okay, but 
you know, there's clients that leave for random reasons, but then when a larger than usual leaves in the aggregate, like, okay, maybe it's random chance or like, oh, crap, maybe this is actually showing up in some other indirect ways. Yes. My, my default mechanism when I'm in situations, most situations is, you know, what could I have done differently? Right. And that was the question I put out there to myself. And I think there's a lot of things. If I had more bandwidth that I could have done things differently. So, and then what was the team structure on? So you're at like 600,000 of revenue dip, dip down to 500 with client loss and pullback. You're, you're sitting at about 80 clients. Uh, what was the team around you? We had me, Kaylee, a full-time associate advisor. Um, we also at, in the summer, were saying like, how can we build some capacity here? So we reached out to nifty advisors and brought on somebody over there um, who is still with us and works 12 hours a month, um, which was super helpful. Doing doing what? Operations tasks. So at this point, he is the TD slash swab expert and process paperwork and and just really communicates on the investment paperwork and just management of tasks on the custodian platform. And so so Nifty Advisors, just for those who aren't familiar, like does outsourced um, operations and and assistance support for advisory firms. So like you had them plugged in for their um, uh, for their op support on TD Schwab. Correct. Yeah. He, the, the guy that we're working with actually used to work at Schwab. So he's very in tune. <laughs> so he really knows it. <laughs> yeah. He's incredible. He's great. Very cool. And, and so can I ask like, just how does that work? Uh, payments wise like just how do you how do you hire and and pay for that or how does the structure work when you're buying 12 hours per month it's a flat rate and if you don't use the hours it's still the same flat rate and if you go above them there's an hourly charge that you have to do to to make up the extra hours and and do you know just roughly what it what it comes out to be like i'm just trying to visualize like from the business end i mean i'm sure everybody's got to go through the like how many hours do I buy before it's just a better deal to hire someone full time unless you really don't want to manage them and then maybe you still outsource it. So just I'm just curious like how you like price it or think about the cost of of services like that when you're trying to decide do I hire it in or do I do I send it out? Yeah, we went through that process and it, it was very clear to us that we should be outsourcing this to a 1099 type person um, who is an expert in that area that we want to hire for. And we, we pay $780, I think. Um, and, and that's obviously a number that is not consistent because we started you know, a year or two ago. So Nifty could be somewhere different right now. Right, right, right. It is, that's what we're paying. Yeah. This business, business rates change over time. Yes. Uh, so, okay. So, uh, uh, and so is that full team? Like it's you, it's Kaylee to the extent that she's got time. You have a full-time associate advisor. And then you're leveraging Nifty's uh, outsourced team support to help on the um, on the operations end. Does that cover all of it? Yes, plus a little bit. There's one more, more person that's involved in the business, but not on an employee from an employee perspective. Um, so we so use we that? use East, we use East Bay um, as our investment uh, experts, if you will. Um, so Mario Nardone. Um, and his partner, Eric, I basically talk to Mario once a month 
to make sure that our investment strategy and any specific client-related account questions, um, management things that I may not know about, um, are vetted through them just to make sure that we're, we're keeping up to date on our investment management strategy. Um, they do research on the funds. They help us choose our portfolios uh, on a continual basis. So it's, it's very supportive. It's, it's certainly not a TAMP because I'm still doing the operations of the investments and in, in everything in-house, but I'm getting the confidence and the extra research that I need to expand my abilities for my clients uh, through eSpay. Interesting. So not um, not TAMP style because you still got the trading and the management more of, of like out, outsourced, just like outsourced chief investment officer support. I would say that's accurate. Yep. Okay. And and out of curiosity, like how how do you pay for that? Like just how is that priced, or how does that relationship work for you? That is a flat fee, okay. increasing by three percent a year automatically, kind of like XYPN. Okay. Okay. So you've got core servicing clients, like 80, 80 clients, you and an associate advisor who's supporting them at sort of the, the core that's working on them, but your time even is being torn between what you're doing in the business and family demands and, and, and growing home life demands while markets in turmoil and a big client leaves. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens? Like, what, what happens in that in that moment? Like, what did you do when you're sitting there in June and staring that down? Well, just like when any other situation where things might feel out of control, oftentimes the things that feel out of control are maybe out of your control, actually, and and there's nothing you can do about it. And so the best thing to do is focus on those items that you can control. And so that's where I went in into July to say, what can we do right now to get back in control, to improve our situation, both personally and professionally in the business and, and make a real impact. And so we generated some ideas and we said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're, we're going to bring on Nifty. So that was right, right then. That's, that was a decision to bring on Nifty in the summer. Oh, to- because before that, you didn't even have Nifty's support. Like you're just you and your associate are handling these uh, operations tasks. Yes. Plus Kaylee as well. Okay. So, so take me for a moment into your head though. It's like, so just to be clear, like, uh, revenue is down a hundred grand, which is basically means profits are down a hundred grand. So let's hire someone and spend more money. Yes. That's, (laughs) that was scary, but, and this is, this is something that I've always done is keep a really healthy buffer room between me and running out of money. Um, my, you know, my personal and business spending has always been well off the top line. Um, and we've saved a ton personally. Um, so if we ever needed to increase the expenses on the personal side, we can do so because we would just save less. Uh, on the business side, similarly, I was focusing on making sure that my distributions were there. And so we would just, you know, squish down the distributions a bit to increase the expenses to make sure that everything stayed where it needs to be. So can you share more of just how you do that in, in practice? I mean, just like, how do you, how are you deciding, like, is there a cash reserve target that you leave in the business? Is there a like percentage of 
revenue or profits you take out of the business and whatever's left just stays there and builds reserves? Like how, how are you literally managing, okay, if the business generated X dollars of, of profits, like what stays in, what comes out, what comes out that goes to savings on the personal end and like we save in this bucket versus that bucket uh, versus what rolls down the line to get spent? Well, as a as a small business, right, you're you're initially making wanting to make sure that your your family is supported. So Kaylee and I have our personal budget very clearly outlined. And we know what we actually need to survive. And we also know what we want to save every year. And so on the quarterly basis, we are looking at what's available in the business from a distribution perspective by me focusing on the next quarter of business expenses and keeping those in the business. And then looking at our personal life and saying, well, what do we need to pull out of the business to satisfy our general expenses? And then is there anything left for things that we might want to do? Like a, a big house expense, um, more money to invest in the market, um, or maybe a little bit extra to keep in the business because we see that you know the the second quarter coming down the pike there's there's something extra that we just want to prepare for now so it's it's just a constant projection quarter to quarter to make sure that everything is where it needs to be and again if we have a buffer room in the business we can shrink things down from a revenue perspective and still although scary be okay okay and so this became one of those moments as you're staring down okay Profits are going to be off here from where they were and where we were running at the beginning of the year, but we still feel good about bringing on Nifty because we've got to fix this like capacity work-life balance problem. Yes, yeah, and this is a it was a it was a situation where I said we need to reinvest in the business significantly here. So not only was Nifty happening, right? Going back to that initial, what else was I thinking? Um, we hired a web web designer to rebrand the entire website along with uh, the logo for our business because we really wanted to make sure our messaging was clearer so that we could reduce the friction, any friction that was existing online where we do most of our marketing. And so that was something we were going to do. And were, were you feeling like messaging wasn't clear? I mean, like, were you seeing slower growth or like other signals that it was not working as well and needed a change or you just wanted to like fire up more action because we're, we're trying to grow to recover a pullback. I think it was a little bit of, of, it was a little bit of several of those things. Um, initially, I mean, 2022, we brought on three clients. We lost 10 first negative year of clients ever. But again, I'm not surprised because capacity both mentally and physically was, was thin to non-existent. Like I guess um, I mean the irony is uh, if you had brought on enough clients to offset the ones that you were losing and had to onboard and do first year planning for seven more clients, like it just would have been more awful. Correct. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I was upset, but I wasn't. Um, you know, beating myself up too much because it just adjusted to what naturally needed to happen. Yep. And so that combined with, I mean. I'm almost 10 years into the business now. So if I started my business when I was 33 and my clients were in their 20s and 30s, there was a certain brand type there, the colors, the conversations, things like that. And we never really upgraded that too much until this past year. 
when we realized that we, we had to because the clients that we're bringing on are now, they're in their 30s and their 40s. They're at a much higher level of income. I mean, $500,000 or more in household income is typically where we're working now. And we wanted to be speaking to them mm. and, and to speak to them online, which is where most of them are. We had to look legitimate. We had to look trustworthy and substantial in a way um, to have them reach out to us to have a conversation. So although we were writing content that was starting to speak to them, the the branding necessar- wasn't necessarily there yet. Okay. And and who did you hire or work with to to do that? A company called Tiny Frog. Okay. Which is like just web, website design. Web design, yep, and web maintenance. Um, and they've worked with several advisors that we know. So we, we kind of got to see their work before we okay. hired them. And um, that was helpful to know what they might bring to the table. And so what's the cost or what do you budget for doing like a, an entire website overhaul these days? Well, that was much bigger than I've ever spent on a website <laughs> in the past. Um, you know, cause I was getting, I was looking around and I was getting everything from, you know, 10 to 15 grand to 150 grand for your website. And I'm like, how, how could this possibly be that much of a, a range here? Yeah. I understand complexity, but like, I really don't feel like my business is that complex. Right. <laughs> and so after several conversations with, uh, various web designing companies, everybody from individuals to big companies, uh, we settled on Tiny Frog. I, I think we paid about twenty-seven five for the website in the okay. end. So that's a bit, that's a big investment. I mean, good can be very good investment for bringing growth, but like that's that's not you know two hundred and fifty dollars a month to a basic website template system. Like that's a that's a big number. Yeah, we didn't want a template um, as much as maybe we could have gotten by with one. We wanted everything from scratch, um, and we they broke it up. I mean, we had the the strategy segment, and then we had the design segment, and then we had the build segment. So it stretched over eight months, eight okay. painful months. Uh, a lot of a lot of brain space taken up by that kind of thing, and especially when you're doing your own content. We we did our own content for the most part. They helped us okay. with some headlines, but Kaylee was driving the the content creation there. Well, she is. That is her marketing background, right? So like that's that that's her that's her natural space with the caveat that. It still takes a lot of time and effort when you remake your whole darn website from scratch. Correct. Okay. So, um, so you've you've got the nifty hire. You've got the tiny frog buy for uh, for redesigning the website to try to you know, get get growth going again and and connect more with the audience you're trying to reach as you've you've gotten older and the business gotten older and they've gotten older. So you wanted to show up differently. So were there other things that you were changing and putting through as you're like com- coming up on 10 year anniversary and the, the, the squeeze transition that you were in? Yes. I mean, as you can tell, I mean, I'm, I'm very much, I'm an aggressive person by nature. Maybe you can't tell that on this podcast, but I'm a, an aggressive person by nature in that I, I do want to take control of the situation and not leave things to chance. Right. So I was putting a lot of effort, both time money and, and mental space behind this stuff. So I also um, wanted to hire a lead advisor, right? Which ultimately didn't happen, but we put, a, put out a, a lead advisor uh, job role 
and had interviews with various people. Uh, we were going to be very specific for that person, and it just didn't turn out that we found someone to fit that role, and then we we squashed it and, and moved on um, so, as well. So help me understand more of that. You 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 had an associate advisor at this mm-hmm. point, right? So like it's it's you and an associate. So um, I guess it's take us through the thought process of like you know you can hire a lead advisor, you can try to move your associate up and hire an associate behind them. You can just sort of like try to hire a second associate advisor and just have more people supporting you to to delegate or free up time. So I'm I'm just curious like what well both what led in the direction of lead advisor and then what led to not lead advisor <laughs> like die on undoing that after after going out and looking for it the initial thought was i need to expand capacity and very specifically that capacity meant meetings for clients like available time to meet with clients and if i wasn't available to do that for various reasons um, i just didn't have the time to do so and i wanted to expand i needed somebody else to step up and be a lead role with an advi- with a client my associate was not ready for that because she was brand new to the industry when we hired her in okay. 2021. So she was not ready for that. Um, and therefore, a lead advisor needed to be that person. So if I had hired somebody several years into the business and they were an associate role and within a year, year and a half could have been a lead advisor, that would have been one option, but we weren't there. So we had to fill right. that gap somehow. Okay. Okay. So that's what was leading for lead advisor. So how did, how did you like go about trying to find the person or the role? Well, we used uh, LinkedIn, Indeed, um, maybe a few other places uh, to try to put the the word out there, uh, my natural network as well. And we didn't find a ton of people that we wanted to talk to. Mm. And of those people that we did talk to, maybe four of them, um, one of them was someone we really wanted to work with. And he ended up saying no. For various things um, in that's, his own life, that's gotta hurt or be frustrating. Like going all the way through the process and getting to the end. Like we found a person, and now they don't want to take the job with us. Yeah, no, we were both ready to go, and then I was like, "Just so you know, like here is a situation. Like there's going to be some risk on both of our parts here." And I think when I raised that uh, topic of risk. He kind of went back and had some conversations with his family, and just it just wasn't the right time for him so, to take on the risk. So, what was the risk? Like, what what was the risk for him? And I guess like the role or how it was being structured. He was taking a pay cut initially, with the option on the bonus side to make more than he was making, and the bonus was going to be directly related to company revenue growth, top line company revenue growth. So if we could pull that off and, and grow revenue to, I forget exactly how much we need to grow revenue, but reasonable amount to get him to a place where he'd be making more, that would be fine. But it would require him to generate some business as well. And that's where the risk came in. Because he wasn't necessarily inclined or confident that he could do the business development it would take to actually make the numbers add up. At the time, yes. I think from a, from a, from a skill set and commitment standpoint, I think he could have done that. It was just kind of like I was talking about before. There were certain things going on in life that just was taking his attention away from that. And he just didn't trust that he'd be able to be fully committed, which I, I really appreciate. He was very honest with me and he was saying this. And as much as it stung, I think it was the best decision for everybody. So can I ask just some further 
detail of, of just like how were you going to structure the the comp? I mean, it sounds like it's a like sal- salary base plus bonus. Uh, like where where were you going to set like set these levels? How was it going to work? So I think we all struggle with like what what is the right comp level to hire an advisor into uh, to take on these types of roles. Well, looking at the landscape, trying to understand what it would cost for a lead advisor to hire a lead advisor. I mean, the range, as there is always a range, was you know like 120 to 170 grand for this for this role, and we weren't going to pay out 120 and certainly not 170 grand based on where we were in the business um, because that's just flat expense where the business needed to grow to be able to afford that flat expense. And so we, we had to pull back a little bit and say, all right, well, we're willing to pay just over $100,000 in base salary. And then that's where we just said, all right, and your uh, bonus money is going to be paid out on an annual basis, first year bonus tied directly to top line revenue. Um, so if the firm grows by 5%, you receive 5% of your salary back. If the firm grows by 50%, you receive 50%. Oh, okay. So it it's not literally a percentage of the firm. Like it's not a percentage of the new revenue the firm generated per se. It's just literally like whatever the growth rate of the firm is, that is the bonus paid on your salary. So if we grow 20%, you get a 20% kick to your salary. So you go from 100 to 120. Correct. And that's where I thought, okay, this is where, I think this is a good blend of us taking a risk and you taking a risk because you could blow it out of the water. If if we really kill it this year and in your part of that, you're going to get paid a lot. If if we don't, you're not going to get paid as much as you're making now. And so, and recognizing like, hey, I'm a little capacity constrained. So like, you know, you've really have to come in and help drive growth. This is, we can achieve 20% growth, but this isn't going to happen automatically. Like everybody will have to be in helping to support growth to make this happen. Correct. I mean, we we certainly and have always had um, prospects reaching out to us through our website and various other things which we can get into if you want to. and so there was a stream of prospective clients. It just said I wasn't going to be speaking with them. It was the lead advisor was going to step in, have that sales conversation, lock in the client, and then take on those clients. So the candidate doesn't take the offer, and you decided not to go back out to the market again. Yes. So what 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 changed between the first time you went to hire this and the second time that you decided you didn't want to hire this anymore? We just got confident in the fact that we could take this on and we just had to improve our efficiency and our processes. So this is where... So so you went from, wait, maybe we don't need more people to solve this. We just need to refine our systems and processes to solve this. Correct. Did something happen in the window? Like, did something happen in the window that made you like realize, oh, it's that maybe we don't need to hire? Or was this more of... I'm not feeling it on the hiring end. We got to figure out something else. Let's look at our systems and processes. I think the the process of just talking to people and dealing with that situation had us pull back on the risk ourselves and say, you know what, we, we don't have to risk everything here to pay someone more than we really want to pay somebody right now to grow the revenue. Let's let's ride this out a little bit. Let's let's let the market come back a little bit, which would increase our revenue because part of our revenue is from AUM. And let's see what the website 
is going to do for us going forward. And at the same time, we we were managing our our tasks differently too because we brought on uh, Hubly as an overlay to our CRM, which is Wealthbox, to better manage our workflows. And so we had a better eye on what those workflows were. There was more automation involved, and we could be more efficient and have our arms around the business in a much better way um, by using that system and Nifty combined. And did and did like Hubly work well for doing that? Like, have you been able to layer on more workflows? Yeah, I mean, Hubly has has been great for us because I mean, now we're we're not much more from a capacity perspective, or I should say, a people perspective. We're in a very similar place than as we were last year in June, right? We have the associate advisor, we have um, me, Kaylee, Mario, um, and uh, an intern right now. But uh, and and then we have Nifty, and so yet we feel like things have drastically changed, partially because of something we haven't talked about yet. Um, in 2022 and previous to that, I mean, when I had started my business, I was meeting with people, clients, four times a year. Then I went to three times a year, and then we in in the fall of 2022, out of just necessity and efficiency's sake, we said 2023 is going to be the year we transition to more of a surge-like structure and have two meetings a year for existing clients. And so we did that for 2023. So now we took our meetings from over 200 with the 80 clients or 85-ish clients that we had to now having 90 clients and having 168 ongoing meetings. So that hugely increased our capacity. One... (laughs) I, I think there's a powerful um, like consideration there to reflect that for so many firms that I see the like the process is always you know we we do all these things for clients but we're having capacity issues and so the the solutions are either like okay how do we do you all the things we do more efficiently right so systems process workflow technology automation uh, or you know the, these are like require too much individual client work and personal touch it's just we have to hire people for these and so we we hire advisors or other staff and we sort of it's the business saying goes like you throw bodies at the problem right like you just you hire people to have enough time capacity to stamp out the problem and rarely do i find does anybody take a step back and just say like maybe we just have more meetings than we need to have and if we just don't have that many meetings then there's literally not as many meetings and work and like pretty much all the other capacity problems start going away <laughs> if you if you just like do do less or like do less and recognize that maybe your clients really will be totally fine if you do less and that you're actually just giving them more meetings and service than than they literally needed or even wanted so what what happened when you told clients like we're we're going we're going from three meetings a year back to two meetings a year because I can easily tell the like disaster stories in in our heads of like you know the clients like how you dare you do this like you committed this to me you can't dial back services and like you know the indignant outrage that comes but uh what what actually happened <laughs> when you when you said we're going from three meetings a year to two meetings a year you are correct I was scared to death to voice this to any of my clients. And so we put out a a message via our newsletter in August of 2022 that this was going to happen for the spring of 2023. Um, One one client left and the rest of them were, I shared that with them in the meetings for the fall. 
as well, just to make sure everybody was clear. Did you see it? Did you understand it? Do you have any questions about it? And, and part of it was, listen, we are not taking down the value here. We, are, we feel, now we've been in the business for nine years, we feel the way that we add value best is to certainly add the pro, have the proactive meetings, right? So we're still going to be scheduling the next meeting in the meeting we're currently in. We're just going to have them in the spring and the fall, but we're always going to be here for you on demand because as we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, people in their 30s and 40s have crazy lives, right? When, when jobs change and they have a new benefits package or a negotiation to, to jump into, when they, they have a baby, when they uh, have to sell their house and buy a new one to expand or any number of things, that's a big deal. And so we feel that our on-demand access is hugely valuable to our clients and people use us for those things. So it's not like, oh, we have no th- meeting in the summer now we can't talk to Beyond Your Hammock until the fall. And if we have something to deal with, we're just going to have to suck it up. That's not the case. It's you have access to us when you need us most. So this is not a reduction in value. It's more of a restructuring so that the value shows up even stronger. And so as you framed it, like the the fact that we're going to have fewer committed meetings just gives us more flexibility to meet with you when you want to talk. When you got something going on, this gives us more capacity to be there exactly when you need us to be there. Correct. And a lot of our clients, because again, their, their, comp- their, their complexity is increasing and they have equity compensation or other tax factors, right. um, we're involved, especially when they use our designated CPA, uh, people, people that we refer people to, we're involved heavily in that process too. So not only are we having a meeting in the early part of the spring, but we're probably communicating around tax time. They're sending us their tax return. We're using Holista Plan to kind of double check things on our end. So there's there's things that we continue to add from a value perspective outside of what they even realize we're doing. And we just have to make sure we share what we're doing and, and where things have been. It's easily forgotten where we were five years ago to where we are now. So they have to know that to make sure that they can see the, the substance behind what we're saying. So one client left. Yeah. So how'd that feel? Like just when you got got through and looked back and for what I know, like was all the fear in going through that and building up to it? It's it feels incredible now. I mean, this this has been the year of me talking straight when I don't really feel comfortable talking straight to people in general. And and that was one of those times. Cause on the other end of it, it's like, wow, I wish why why am I not doing this to everybody that I feel like I need to say something to? That I'm afraid to say something to. And, and the impact was we had two and a half months without client meetings in 2022. In 2023, we have about five months without client meetings. So we've doubled our, I wouldn't say months off because we're certainly not off, but no client meetings means more flexibility, some time off, um, some time to work on the business rather than in the business. And it's just, it just feels so much better. So it's quite a list of stuff that you went through. So I'm just thinking about it. So we um, we hired Nifty for uh, ops admin support. So as I always think, it's like, so I, so I never have to call Schwab Trade again because um, they call and figure the paperworky stuff out. Um, did, a, did a rebrand of the website. Uh, picked up Hubly to build out more workflows on top of Wealthbox. And then cut the meeting cadence from three times a year to two times a year. And there's more. 
And there's more. It's quite a revampy year already. But like, all right, what else happened? <laughs> well, in order of things, um, the next thing that we did was we hired FP Transitions. And that, for people who know FP Transitions, that might sound strange after what we've talked about as far as my business is 10 years old. I am certainly not retiring anytime soon. I'm not selling the business. Why get involved with them? Um, they have this program called EMS Grow. And it's basically a subscription program. I think I pay $250 a month, so three grand a year. And it, it gives me access to a full valuation of the business, uh, a benchmarking comparison of my business to similar businesses that have the same revenues and also those have, who have twice as much in revenue to see where we're different and where we're the same. And also, I can use them as a stopgap for a contingency plan until or unless I get something more significant in place. And what does that mean? Like you stop cap contingency plan for what? Well, the business, right? So if, if something happens to me and right now, because I don't have anybody internally that's going to take over the business, I don't have any handshake deal with another advisor who would take over the business. My, my family's out of luck, right? My clients are out of luck. And so by tapping into FP Transitions Network, I'm able to sign an agreement with them that can be squashed at any time, but sign an agreement with them where they basically will, if something happens, get the word out to advisors who are looking to purchase said business. And from what they say, the, the valuation doesn't really drop a ton as it would in like a fire sale where, you know, you're just trying to, to, to get things done. Right. So just it has that that's that that's why it's like the stopgap because right now I have nothing so this is better than nothing and it's actually a pretty be, good deal be, because they broker all these transactions just already from what FP Transitions does they've got a a long list of people who are interested in buying firms that would do it on relatively short notice so the the commitment is essentially just they'll they'll put out the word to their network if something happens to you and and we need to activate a, a emergency sale because you're hit by the proverbial or literal bus uh and because they've already done the valuation have the details like they can arrange a sale quickly which means it can in theory happen fast enough that there's not much loss in value in that transition scenario exactly okay and so uh so what is it like in a business in your context going through and and getting a valuation when, as you said, like you're you're not necessarily looking to sell anytime soon. You've still got a long time horizon on the business. But I mean, as we were you know, sort of talking about the very very beginning, like it is just a different angle when you see like how how an external party values your business, and in particular, like what an external party cares about and focuses on. <laughs> Like which which levers actually impact the value of the business from an external buyer's perspective? I agree. That was that was it was a, it was an interesting um, process to go through, and and part of the reason I was I was doing this was just to try to figure out, continue to figure out what to do next in the business. Because like yeah, you know, we talked about I was trying to hire, and I then tried to to change the processes, outsource some things. I was just trying to figure out if I wanted to grow this business, what am I supposed to do? So I, I had talked to coaches, I had talked to um, mentors of mine, and and I just wasn't getting the answer that I needed to take the next step. So that was, this was just another thing to try there. And and when they shed light on this, I realized for one, 
which was very helpful. My business is worth more than I thought it was. Not necessarily because I was doing the math before and it was just better math. It was just that, yeah, is my business really a business? Is it really valuable? I don't know. Um, should I treat it as an asset? Should I not treat it as an asset? That's kind of the conversation I was having with myself previous to this. So how did like how did the valuation come back? How did they look at the business? I mean, essentially, they were saying it was about three times revenue. And the reason it was three times revenue is because all my revenue now is is recurring revenue. Okay. Um, so the recurring revenue in the annual growth rate, which this was a surprise for me, they said, Anything under $2 million in revenue, any business, any advisory business under $2 million in revenue, the the things that move the needle are recurring revenue and annual growth rate, not the SEO, not the processes, not the systems, the tech, the people, none of that. It was just those two things. Because in practice, you're probably getting bought by a larger advisory firm who at the end of the day is more likely to like put it onto their systems and their process and their website and the rest. So just they're 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 not necessarily going to buy that stuff from you. They like strong recurring revenue and a growth rate on top of it. Exactly. Exactly. Which makes sense. It's just that I was like, well, all the things we've done here though, it just means nothing. But in actuality, <laughs> if you do those things, right, you have the SEO, you have the processes and the systems and the tech, that actually should, hopefully, if you know what you're doing, increase your recurring revenue and also your growth rate. So it kind of all works out that way, but it's just very specifically not those things. Interesting. So any other revelations from just the like going through this uh going through this valuation process? Yes. The one of the things that was great to see was that in my peer group, so again, these are the 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 companies that have a similar revenue to mine. Uh, 70% of their clients are over the age of 50. If you look at my client list, 94% of my clients are under the age of 50. Because you've, you, all, you had this focus from the start on working with younger, upwardly mobile professionals. Correct. And so that gave me a lot of confidence in the future because if I'm doing good service for these clients, they're not hopefully dying anytime soon. They're continuing to save. Right. And expand. So everybody wins in that manner. Another thing that came about was they compared me. So my, my peer average growth rate was 7%. Over the past eight years, my compound growth rate is 44%. My households at 90 households was much less than the peer group, which was 146. I think the last thing that was a big deal for me anyway was my average fee per client was over $7,000 versus my peers at under $4,000. So you have overall, say, a faster growing, younger, more focused clientele of people who are paying higher fees. And so all of that, I guess, is part of what comes together to say this business gets valued at almost three times revenue. Correct. So somebody's got like, how do you think about it when someone comes back and says like, yeah, your your business is worth $1.8 million, give or take a little. I think you said earlier, like your 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 run rate revenue was six hundred dipped down, has been recovering back again. So you know, give or take a little. But uh like how do you think about that? You know, you're you're drawing whatever income you're drawing out of the practice, but then someone's like, Yeah, I think you might get a one point eight million dollar check for this thing. It was it was an interesting 
feeling that I had, I mean, and since that, I, our, our, our projected 12 month rolling revenue is now 637. So it's, it's definitely back up and beyond where it was. So it's probably even higher than they said for a dollar amount. Um, and just to understand, again, I've been, I've been trying to mentally shift from advisor to business owner over the past several years and see my business as its own entity. And part of the, the website, like I am no longer on the front page, which I started to really despise uh, having my face on the front page of my website. And now I am just in the background because this business is not me and I'm not the business anymore. It's its own thing. So this just further established the separation between the two. And now I can see that there is a true value here. And it's not just me pretending that I know how to value my business. It's FP Transitions, who has done over 17,000 valuations, telling me this. So now I'm saying, all right, I have this business value. I actually understand what is going to move the needle from a growth perspective and increased value. I have, what, 20 years to go now. So I'm doing this at a much earlier stage than most advisors who start to do this when they're transitioning into retirement. And so I just feel like I have a, a big advantage, just like any client that starts to save at a young age for the compound nature of this whole thing. So so what was driving this shift? I mean, you said like, I've been trying to go from advisor to business owner, making an entity. I don't want myself on the homepage anymore. Like what's, what's driving that shift for you? It's a good question. Part of it is I know that for me to actually have true vacation time and time away from the business, I need this business running without me being here 24 hours a day. And so that means more people should be involved. Um, I also realize that I don't want to spend all of my time in the business every single year working directly with clients because I love the business strategy part of business and just the, the competitive nature of growing a business and the ability to to see something grow that I've put so much effort into. And, and I need to be outside and working on the business to be able to do some of those things. So I would much rather be working with a few clients and, and staying in tune with my advisory skills that way, but being more the business owner and growing through through hiring and who knows, maybe even acquisition someday, but just making this more of an established business and, and seeing where we can go with it. So as you've gone on this journey, you are highlighting that uh, the business sort of like has shifted, right? So the the website had to be redesigned and rebuilt because just the the clientele and the way you showed up five to ten years ago when you were getting started is a little bit different than today. Some of that is just you you've grown and are more established as advisors, but some of that is your your clientele have kind of shifted. I guess like more affluent have moved up market a little, which just tends to happen almost all of us as as the business is growing, we get more established. So I'm I'm curious, just as you're staring down ten year anniversary and have been doing these refinements, like what else is changing from like the the way you did it, you know, the way you got clients to serve clients five years ago from what you're what you're doing and and executing on today. Then there are, there are a few more things in in that realm. Um, just doing the marketing itself, I think, is has at least we're starting to think about different ways to do the marketing. Um, in the past, we've relied solely on content, right? We've been doing content since day one. Um, I was initially doing it, and then Kaylee took it over, and that's really helped. I mean, we we have a lot of web traffic. I think we're up to 
over 7,000 views a month on our on our website. I think 7,500 maybe in 2023. And that SEO is driving a lot of our prospects. So we don't spend a lot of time on going out and doing on the ground networking and and calling people and, and doing that kind of thing. People are coming to us. There's a lot of inbound marketing happening already. But in order to get to another level, I mean, we've continued to do our podcast. Um, it's taken a hiatus for a couple months for various reasons, but we continue to do our podcast now, which which gets out to another level of people who aren't reading their content, they're listening to it. And now I've hired a, I guess you'd call them a, a podcast PR firm to get me on other people's podcasts. So I'm expected to be on 24 podcasts over, I don't know, it doesn't really have a time limit on it, but let's say a year, so two to three a month, um, to see what kind of expansion we can do that way. Interesting. So they, so like they, they go find podcasts for which you might be a good fit and then pitch you as a guest to get onto those podcasts? Correct. Yeah, they, they take a, a bunch of information and, and what you are looking for and who you're looking to get in front of, and then they are pitching you, and then they connect you with the host, and you talk, and you schedule a time to record so, the podcast. Very cool. So who did you hire to do that? Interview Connections is the name of the company. Interview I, Connections. Okay. And I met Jessica. She's one of the owners of the company back at FinCon, I think, three, four, maybe even five years ago at this point. We've just stayed in touch because it wasn't our time. You know, we weren't ready for that yet, but we just pulled the trigger this year. And um, uh, can I ask, like, what it, what does it cost to have someone try to go get you 24 podcast bookings? I think we, we caught a deal at the end of the year and we paid it all up front, which is a, even an a, a additional reduction. So I think we paid 12 grand. Um, so it came out to $500 a podcast. To, to see what happens here. Okay, so 12K to, to try to get on to 24 podcasts. Is there a, like, is, is there a, a plan of how you're doing it try to try to convert podcast guest appearances into in the business? I'm just trying to, because I know some people are like, I just go and show my expertise because I've got a pretty clear niche. So anybody who resonates with it just tends to show up. Others are like, I I made an ebook that I'm going to offer to all the listeners, and then like they go to this landing page, and then like we put them in our marketing funnel, and like they have a a big old process to it. So I'm um, I guess I'm just wondering like how how are you thinking about con- trying to like actually turn podcast appearances into prospects and clients? Well, two things, and, and part of the reason we hung on and, and didn't pull the trigger was until we got our website revamped, right? So. We do want to drive traffic back to our website. We want to create okay. backlinks, further back, more backlinks for our website. And we also want to get more podcast listeners as well. So if, if those three things happen, I think it just increases the web and being the spider web of, of things. And we have more people in the ecosystem, okay. which means more potential for great clients to come on board. Okay. So you're not necessarily coming to this with a like... I need to see five clients directly attributable to these twenty-four podcasts to to like stamp this a win. You're like you're not necessarily putting that level of like expectation onus on it. This is a uh, build our backlinks, build our traffic, build our own podcast listeners, and and just see if we can ex- expand the the ecosystem we're in. Yeah, I mean, I know that if I bring on two clients, I'm basically covering my costs right over time. So right. 
I'm not too worried about covering the cost part. Um, I also want to expand my exposure to be the rainmaker for the business. So if I could then take the podcast that I'm on and leverage that to get on other podcasts, then great, right? Because then it just further expands where I am speaking. And I feel like I have a lot of good things to share when we talk about topics that we're focused on for our clients. So th- that is exciting to me as well. It kind of goes back to the CEO part of, of my role where I really enjoy working on the business and speaking about the business. So so interview connections and a podcast push is one end of like things things you're doing differently to, to show up differently. So are, are there other... Uh, you were sort of raising this context of marketing. Are there other marketing changes that you're you're looking at or working on here? I don't necessarily think there's other marketing changes per se. I think it may be the, the prospect process is something that we have revamped, which is obviously connected to marketing. Um, we've, we've always done a 30-minute conversation. Sometimes it goes to 45 minutes with our prospects. And that's really essentially what we do, right? And then we're following up with them via email. We might go back and forth. And they either become a client or they don't become a client. And it so, worked. So it's just like a one meeting close. Uh, just We're going to understand your situation a little. We're going to talk about ourselves a little. If this feels like a good fit, we should be off and running. And if it's not, that, that's okay too. Yes. And, and that worked fine for us. I mean, we, we've measured our close rate over the past, I think, five or six years. And it's 40%, right? So we're, we're not worried about the close rate there. However... As we continue to increase our fees, which we have over the entire time we've been in business for not only for inflation purposes, but also because we have more value um, in what we do for clients, we want to make sure that we're making, you're helping people understand what they're getting, right? If you raise the fee and you say, here's 30 minutes and that's it, it becomes a little harder to transition them from prospect to client. And so this year, and this is outlined on our website. If you click on the work with me button in the top right corner, it um, it says where well, you're going to have an initial conversation. And then at the end of that conversation, if it's going well, we're going to gather some data from you. We're going to build a one-page financial plan outline. And then we're going to get back on the, the phone. In this case, actually, phone is first, and then Zoom would be second, Zoom video. And we're going to share this one-page outline, which helps you focus on the areas that you need to take on next. And some of the things that we think would be great for you to do, regardless of whether you work with us or not. So that second meeting, you're going to get this one-page outline regardless. And it does give us another chance to further show our value by doing specific things and and directing them to what we'd actually do for them and not just talking in generalities. And we, we made that fix in January. And we had eight people go through it. And we have eight new clients because of it. So we have a 100% close rate on that new process. Coincident or not, it's just been amazing so far. So so help me understand just a little bit more of the the structure and what you're, what you're doing. So first is just like initial phone call. I think you said like 30 to 45 minutes. So what, what exactly happens in that call now? Like what do you cover? What's the agenda in that? My main goal is to get grounded in why this client or that why this prospect reached out to us and what they're looking for. The current financial situation, the questions they're asking, the goals that they might have, the opportunities or challenges that they're facing. So I know firstly if I can actually add value here and how. And even more so, are they similar to other clients that we help? 
because our whole value system is based on the fact that not only are we now experienced in the business, because I've been in the business 15 years, um, owned my business for 10, but we also work with a very specific type of clientele and we do it over and over again. So the things that they're dealing with are usually things that we've dealt with through clients 50, 100 different times, like buying houses and having children. So things like that. So if they are sharing things that fit into what we do for other clients, we know that this is a good fit for us. And also when we understand what their their income level is, because that's a major factor. It's not the asset level, it's the income level that we determine if they're a good fit on the financial side of things. If we can see that in that meeting, then we feel more confident that yes, we should move on to the second meeting. But if we don't see that, it also gives us an out to say, all right, you know, great talk, but we don't think we're a fit for you either. So is there anything that they like do or have to fill out beforehand in in coming to this meeting to uh to sort this out? I mean, like do you, do you do you have a data or screening stuff they they do in advance or is the whole idea no no we're going to get that we're going to get that from you in the conversation in this meeting. When you sign up for a meeting with us, we we use schedule once and there's a a bit of a questionnaire. We've actually shrunk it down recently but it it basically says you know name email address uh level of income uh total assets and do you want an advisor to manage your investments or not because we want to understand that too we might work with them even if they don't want us to manage their investments but we want to understand that because the combination of income level and the answer to that question is going to tell us whether it's an ideal client or not so ideal Okay. So we have that information going into that first meeting. And so you come through the first meeting, uh, you've got some sense as to whether they're, they're a fit or not. And as I'm presuming in practice, the first outcome is is just literally like, uh, are, am I going to even try to schedule a second meeting and continue this conversation? Or are, like, are we done right here? Because this just clearly isn't a fit. Uh, so assuming you get through the first one and this is uh, – uh, and this is otherwise going well. So what exactly happens next? Like, what are, you, what are you doing or creating next? Well, at the end of that first call, I'm collecting their financial information. So how many accounts do you have? How much cash do you have? How many investment accounts? What are the balances in those accounts? What do you have for debt? What are your you know, top three goals? And, and just collecting that data so that at this point, I mean, if I have that information and I've talked to them for 30 to 45 minutes, I'm pretty good at understanding where we need to go. So I will take that information and then come back to them with, this isn't mind-blowing stuff because other people do this, but that one-page financial plan that covers various topic areas, like here's the topic of savings in cash. You know, what, what, what should we be doing over here? Here's a topic of, of protection planning. And do you have an estate plan? Do you, do you have the insurance that you need? And uh, based on your circumstances, we would suggest X, Y, and Z. Um, based on your goals, you should be doing this or that. Um, from a tax perspective, we think that these are things that you probably should look into, whether talking to your CPA or working with an advisor on. And so it gives them this level of insight that they may not think is something that an advisor might do for them. Um, and or it differentiates us from the next advisor because we're giving very specific advice. Like I'm, I'm going to give them what I know from what, from what they've given me and not say, you know what, I'll give you a little bit but you're going to have to come on board for me to give you the rest. I was going to say, and like, just how do you think about drawing the line between 
how much do you give them to show value and where do you draw the line so that they have to actually hire you to help and where do you draw the line so that you don't make it so forced to give help that it's like awkward because you don't actually tell them anything because it's all too nonspecific. Like just how do you think about trying to find that balance of the the right amount to give them that's not too much nor too little? I don't necessarily think about it too much. Um, you know, I, I think I've I'm just looking at one right now, and I mean, there's some basic stuff, right? From a, from a cash and cash flow perspective, calculating your emergency reserve target and understanding how much you need in cash for short term spending like bigger payments, you know, cars or, or down payments or whatever outside of that to figure out if you have enough or too little cash or too much cash in the bank and what to do with that. Um, and if I've already asked them about their savings rate, like where are you putting money now? So if they if they come back and say, well, we're, you know, we're saving money into our 401k and, and maybe a little bit of money into taxable investments. And I know they're uh, their level of income, I can say, all right, well, you're saving 10% of your gross income and your gross income is $500,000. That to me is really low. So you should probably think about bumping that up to 20, 25% of your gross income. So that's a very actionable item for them. And then you know, a default one is always reviewing your investment strategy to understand, do you have proper diversification aligned with your goals? like Things like that. Um, are you taking advantage of your ESPP plan at work? Because I know you said you had one of those. Um, what's your strategy for ISOs, um, you know, RSUs, and here are some things to think about with those, right? So I'm not going to, I can't tell them what to do because I don't have all of the, the information, but I can give them some direction. So they, they're looking for an advisor, right? It's not like they're not going to use any, nobody. They're either going to use me or use another person. And I say, this, this can help you with the other person as well. So it, it just gives them that first leg up on their planning. And so... If they decide to become a client, where does the financial plan go from here? Like, is have you kind of done what you're going to do, and now we just get a little more into implementation, or is there still like, well, now that you're a client, let me crack out the full financial planning software, and like we're gonna we're gonna do a full one of these now. I mean, a little bit of both. I, I did find doing this first allows us to jump off quicker in the financial planning process. Uh, a meeting one. I mean, my meeting one is usually clarifying goals, making sure that everybody's on the same page. Because sometimes I'm talking to both um, spouses, sometimes I'm not. Most people are married, um, and then looking at their established balance sheet and cash flow through the information I'm collecting, so that we can at least have a point A, their financial foundation, where things are today, and also a point B, the goals that they have talked about for tomorrow. And if we have time, we're going to run an initial projection in the money to show a long-term projection and a short-term five-year cash flow to see if any if there's any bottlenecks or things that are are really big red flags. But that's going to happen regardless. And so I haven't done that yet. I'm going to do that in meeting one. And then in meeting two, we're going to talk about investment strategy to make sure that all my, my clients are making a lot of money and they're supposed to be saving a lot of money. So we really need to make sure that their asset allocation is appropriate and they're using the right accounts because that can build up very quickly. And if they're out of balance, that can be a disaster too. So that's meeting two. And meeting three and four, we go into um, the protection planning, like life insurance, disability insurance, health insurance, estate planning. Um, and along the way, things are happening that are very specific to them. And so we're taking time to get into the details, whether it is buying a new house and talking about affordability of housing or not, um, or changing jobs. Like that all kind of fills in the blanks. 
and then we move move forward from there. Um, fully supportive of them because we now know what their situation is. We've learned more about them, and and I think we can we can help a lot better uh, in years two plus. So you end up with a a two meeting sales process, like initial sort of screening, get to know you, create this like one page outline of initial action items deliver it at a second meeting to see if they want to become a client based on the value you're demonstrating from the from the one page outline. If they say yes, then you get into essentially a four meeting structure, present a plan, get into investment strategy, uh, then dig into protection planning, estate planning, and, and any of the client specific issues. And then they're into the on, ongoing client phase at that point. Yeah, they get jumped into the, the surge process. So out of curiosity, um, you had said earlier, like your, your business model is, is, has a, a, a big AUM component. So, you know, you got hit when markets were down, uh, in, in 2022, but you had also said, uh, you know, in the screening context, you're often looking more heavily at client income than you are at client assets. So can you help us understand just what the business model is? at this point, like who the target clientele actually is? Sure. The, I mean, but if I'm going to be very specific, it's, it's the 40 year old client couple. They're both working. They have one or two children and they make $500,000 in household income up to 750 in some cases. And they are really looking to take advantage of that cash flow by growing their wealth because they're not typically coming from wealth, right? They're, they're kind of self-made in that sense. But they also know that they want to enjoy themselves today. So there's a very delicate balance between living it up now okay. and being able to pay for college and retirement down the road while also having flexibility to maybe do something different than they're currently doing in their job um, when they're 50 years old. And those clients regardless of whether they have investments or want to use us for investment management, are in need of services. And so if you go, I mean, again, on my website, if you go to the work with us uh, button, there's actually a calculator on there that kind of shows the breakdown of our services in dollar form, which is super transparent. I'm a little bit afraid of it, but we put it out there uh, in January to see where it goes. But we we start everybody off at a $5,000 a year paid monthly um, service level. And if they change to use us for AUM, which is all built into the contract initially, there's no extra things to sign. They say, we're signing up, we're going to pay $5,000 if we have zero assets up to $200,000 of assets with Beyond Your Hammock. And then once they get over that $200,000 marker, we start to reduce the financial planning fee and we add on a percentage for assets under management. So over time, it gradually increases. And we feel like it's in a good reflection of our value as people get bigger. So you end out with a, a a blended fee model. It's not it's not just a like once you're um uh once you get to two hundred thousand in assets or once you get to five hundred thousand assets, one percent of AUM covers your whole thing, so your planning base fee goes away. You're you you keep a planning fee and an AUM fee throughout. Just the planning fee like scales back as the AUM gets going. Correct. And we've always had that blended fee. It's just been altered over time. So can you give us just some more sense of like, just how does that, like, how does that offset work? I mean, is it, is it, is it dollar for dollar? Is it some other tweak? Like just how, how quickly does the planning fee step down as the AUM fee steps up or like how far do they have to go before the planning fee goes away and it's just AUM only? Well, I don't think it really ever does unless they have 
it's circumstantial when they have millions of dollars and we don't have a ton of clients with a bunch of money with us. Say our top end is probably 3 million in assets. So we're not talking about five, 10 million in assets right now. Um, And so if, if they, if they, like I said, if they have zero to 200,000, it's just a $5,000 flat fee, no AUM charges. If they have $201,000, right, their, their annual fee goes to 3000. So five to three. And then they get charged one percent. So it's essentially the same exact same fee, fee. Okay. just switched to be paid differently. But then, as their assets grow, we do get paid a little bit more. So if they get up to the five hundred thousand dollar mark, right now they're paying twenty seven fifty in financial planning, and they're paying forty seven fifty in um, AUM. And so the total price is seventy five hundred, which I think is still very reasonable for that type of clientele. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. And so just. As their assets grow higher, you you slightly bump the base planning fee down, but you never eliminate it. You just ratchet it down a bit. Yes. How how low does it go? Like how how far down does it come as their assets grow? I mean, like, is it formula based, or you just got tiers that you made? Why did I just picture limbo when you said that? How low can you go? How low can you go? Um, the two thousand dollars is the low right now. So okay. if you if you have two million dollars with us, you're you're paying two grand in uh, planning, and you're paying sixteen grand in portfolio management, so eighteen grand. Okay, Be, because just your fee schedule is zero point eight percent by the time you get to two to two million. Correct. Which again, I think that's you know some people are charging one percent on that, so I think we're yeah. we're undercharging there. So I just I've done a lot of thinking and work with it, yeah. so I just I just feel very confident in it right now, which is why I put the calculator online. Yeah, I guess just help us understand a little bit more like why why the calculator online. I mean, it's one thing to say like I'm going to put the fee schedule online and you know, they can they can do their math. It's another to say like no, no, we literally built a full-on calculator like it will math it for you. Uh, so I guess I'm wondering like why why the fee calculator? What what took you there? I have a chart that is on my PDF that I send prospects after the first meeting. And it outlines based on level of assets what your planning fee is and what the percentage of AUM charge is. But when I'm talking about it on a call, it's very hard for them to not understand, to, to grasp it if they don't have it in front of them. So I wanted to just make sure that everybody knew that I wasn't trying to pull a fast one. It's very clear exactly what your price is going to be. And I just wanted to go over the top with transparency so that there was no questions about it. Nobody could say, you didn't tell me something. Right. So what surprised you the most in just this journey of continuing to build the advisory business? How volatile it can be. And when I say volatile, revenue, uh, functionality, emotions, it becomes this completely separate, sometimes uncontrollable feeling thing. And there's there's almost like a magnetism to it though, because it's like, I don't, I'm not running from it. I'm, I'm getting pulled further into it. And it just, it just feels incredible to, to be around for 10 years and, and be challenged by the business and know that it's going to be no less challenging. The more, the more I am, the more experience I get. Right. So a lot of times you could say, oh, I have more experience. It's, it's less, it's easier. This will never get easier. It'll get more and more challenging. The more experience I have, which to me, as a competitive person, that just really is exciting. And it's a good framing. Like this won't get easier, even even as I get more experienced. I just like earn the privilege of tackling more complex problems. Yeah. So, what's been the the 
low point overall in just the the ten year journey of of building the business. Hundred percent, the June two thousand twenty two situation. You know, clients going out the door, markets falling, Kaylee on the brink of just depression, and and me trying to keep all of the the systems going in personal and in family life, like our personal and business life. That was it. Just felt like I was getting ripped into pieces. And and so how does this how does this I was going to say balance for you? Maybe balance isn't the right word. Like how do you manage this dynamic when you know, your 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 spouse is also your key team member, right? Just for better or worse, there is a like. If I'm a business owner and my team member is not showing up the way that they need to in the business, like there are certain conversations I can have as a business owner about how to manage this, how to how to navigate this. That's a little bit harder when the person is also my spouse, and <laughs> and the challenge has to do with raising our joint child. Uh, so. I guess I'm wondering, like, obviously there are benefits to having spouse in the business for you know the the your opportunity to build something as a uh, uh, as a couple, and just you know there does tend to be a different level of buy-in, just like relative to an employee when when the family is part of the business. I mean, just I guess I'm just really wondering, like, how do you how do you reflect on the dynamic of you know what happens when your your key team member is your spouse, and then business and family life are getting more complex at the same time. Well, the first thing I thought of was I don't know the the, the name of the game, but you know the game. There's a, there's a pole that is in the ground and it goes straight up, and there's a a ball that is tethered to that pole, and you like hit it, and it goes around and comes back to you mm-hmm. on the other side of the pole. It's yeah, I would. I always knew it literally as tether ball, but I think there's there's different names depending on what region of the country you're from that you used to play that. <laughs> So that, right, you, you hit the ball and you think it's gone and you turn around and you get whacked with it in the forehead. Right? <laughs> it's kind of like that in that nothing gets released and, and, and put out of, of your sights, right? Because if you say something in the business, if you get in an argument in the business, you're going to sit down with that same person at dinner that night and you have to have a conversation again. And the ball comes swinging back around. Right. And vice versa, right? So it's just... It's a constant, that kind of risk, but I think it is very fruitful because it certainly has had us get so much better from a communications perspective because there is no escaping the fact that we're going to be together. So right. we, we work from, from our house. We work virtually right now. So we're together a lot. And it's just the communication that has increased and, and, and has greatly benefited our relationship. And, and I would never trust anybody more then I trust Kaylee to do what she does. I mean, she is an absolute maniac when it comes to getting done. And it's it's something that I, I really feel confident in. And she can do well for the business for years to come because she wants it as much as I do for this thing to work out. So what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10 years ago as you were starting down this path? Part of it is to don't look for the destination and not pay attention to the, the journey along the way. Um, and part of that means the destination being like more money, more income, like get me to a place where I'm making no money, get me to a place where I can at least be satisfied. Um, because I did that and I went by that point and didn't necessarily build the structure in the business that I needed to, to sustain the growth, which is, I think is a common story. Um, but if I had known that, I may have paid more attention to 
the processes and maybe hiring people a little bit earlier than I did so that it wouldn't have been such a uh, big impact, essentially shooting me back, almost like a governor on the business when we hit the capacity wall. I guess I'm, help me understand more just this like, don't don't just look at the destination, pay attention to the journey along the way. Is is that a like, be be more aware of like the capacity and other limitations that are coming as you're chugging along? Like, is that kind of the context? Because you, I mean, my interpretation, what you said, like it, it sort of felt like you got blindsided a little or like ran ran too hard, too fast into, into a capacity wall you didn't realize was there until you were already in it, on it, hitting it. Essentially, because my answer, again, my answer was always just work harder, work more, work harder, right? do it, do it better. And that only works for so long because you are still only one person. And at some point, if you really want to be more efficient and continue to grow and have a life, because a life in the process is such an important piece to this puzzle for me. Um, I had mentioned, you know, five months off of no client meetings. Like I want to build that in and my capacity is based on that, not not based on 52 weeks of year of client meetings. And so it's really important for me to to build that in. And I didn't pay attention to that because I just said, I'm just gonna, I just gotta get stuff done. And and I wish I hadn't done so much of that because it would have helped me get through some of these more challenging times. Essential certainly when we had the baby. Right, we did not do enough planning for the baby coming around. So, what do you what do you wish you had done in retrospect in preparing for the baby? I think hiring earlier and having someone that was more experienced with the business to help us going through that time frame, um, landing some sort of childcare to protect Kaylee from what we now see was a super challenging time for her as well, because uh, we didn't we didn't do that well. So, any advice you would give? Younger, newer advisors, like thinking about coming into the industry and starting their careers today. You don't have to know what you want to do as long as you understand that this this business can give you what you want. It's it's crazy to think. Well, you know what? I need to have a game plan. I want to have a business plan, and this is how it's going to go. And and then think that it's actually going to follow suit because there are so many things that shift and turn along the way that you'll never know where you are going to be in 10 years when you haven't even taken a step into the business yet. Um, So be flexible and be dynamic, be willing to change and transition. And when you fail, learn from it and just continue because it's a constant that's never going to change. Like I said, it's never going to get more or less complex. It's just going to get more challenging and you're going to fail more, but it's, it's those times that you, you do it right. That keep you going. Um, Warren Buffett said, in his in his letter this this year that or in the I think it was in a Wall Street Journal article that was talking about the letter, but something like he's made twelve great decisions over his lifetime. Twelve in his entire journey. So you don't have to get everything right. Just get the most important things right. I like that framing. Warren Buffett only made twelve great decisions over his lifetime. Get the big ones right. So as we wrap up this this is a podcast about success and you know, one of the themes that always comes up is the the word success means very different things to different people. And so you now built this successful business that per valuation, like you have a multi-million dollar business uh, of of enterprise value. And so the, the business has gone and grown very well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about this question since I've listened to a hundred of these episodes. 
I think success for me is building my business and my life intentionally and being at peace with me so I can be present for my family, friends, and clients and enjoy the journey and the moments that matter most. I like that. I like that. I'm, I'm struck by just the, the, your emphasis on building with intentionality, uh, which means like getting clear on what you actually want it to be so that you can create it intentionally in the first place. Yes. And knowing when you can make decisions and be wrong versus when you have to make decisions and be right, because you can test the waters and then adjust in most cases, but sometimes not. Well, thank you, Eric, for joining us and sharing more of the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're welcome. And I really appreciate you inviting me on. This has been another fantastic conversation. Likewise, likewise. I feel like we're now obligated sometime in 2028 to come back together again and do the do the next five years of the journey. The five-year bug. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.